Are you ready? Yes. Are we recording? Yes. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of the Big Self Podcast. This is Shelly Prevost, and I'm here with my partner, Chad Prevost, and we're doing something a little bit different today. Um, We are kicking off a series in really looking, digging deep into the Enneagram and how we can uh, really break out of our personality box using the Enneagram as a map. And so we're going to be doing a series of panels over the next really few months, actually. So we're going to have a panel with each Enneagram type and really dig into and understand um, their personality structure, how they see the world, um, what some of their mental traps are, what are their emotional patterns that maybe trip them up. But more importantly, we're really, we want to talk to people about how they're growing how they're using the Enneagram to grow beyond just their personality type. And so Chad and I thought we would not ask people to do the work that we ourselves are not willing to do. So today I get to interview him. Yeah, Not only that, but we actually are doing this all the time, aren't we? <laughs> we kind of are. We're just letting you guys into this conversation right now. Um, yeah, but we didn't, we wanted to do the work that we're asking other people to do. And, um, you know, as coaches that the work we do with people, we do, we do ask people to do some vulnerable work. And so we wanted to use this as an opportunity just to share what we're working on, what we're thinking and feeling and how we're using what we think is a really powerful tool to grow as people. So that's what we're going to do today. And today is Chad is in the hot seat and we're just going to have a conversation and share a little bit about how he's using the tool, what he's uh, maybe even still struggling with when it comes to how he sees the world or his ego patterns. Um, and so we'll just see where this goes. Are you ready? Yeah, ready or not. Here we go, I guess. <laughs> so I guess the first thing um, for people to know, you are a type four, which has lots of different names. Some people call it the individualist or the creative or the romantic. So I'm just, if you could just share a little bit with everyone, what do you see when you think of the type four and how you see the world? Do those names fit or is it is it something that is a little bit different um, for you personally? Uh, romantic doesn't sound quite. It depends on how you define romantic. It's got many definitions, so I could see how some of them would apply. I think the one that maybe is the clearest for people to understand from the outside in, as you're getting familiar with it, is the individualist. So that one, you know, I think. In what way for you? Well, you know, I think there is this thing at core of like, uh, it's very important for a four to be recognized as special, as original, as doing something uh, different. Um, and I mean, I know that, you know, a lot of people have this in them, even if they're not a type four, but that is, 
that is a core element. And I did think it was just kind of the natural way that everybody don't, we all want to be special, right? Mm -hmm. But it's especially important, I think, to the four. Yeah. I think it's more core to the four's kind of core need or motivation. And the sad truth is we're not original, you know, or like, cause no one is and nothing is original under the sun. Yeah. But that doesn't stop, stop from trying sometimes. And I think when fours are <laughs> yeah. really in personality, there is this kind of insatiable quest, not only to be unique and different, but also yeah. to be around people who are unique and interesting and different. I'm so glad that you bring that up because what literally I was just about to add was, I remember in my late teens and, you know, in college and then into seminary and then not long out of seminary. So in my early twenties, I, as I really grew in my ambition, uh, to be a writer, a, a well-regarded writer, whether it was a poet or a novelist or, or whatever it was, I remember very distinctly, like, only being interested in forming relationships with people who I thought were interesting. And by interesting, I meant like cool. And even if they were disagreeable, just challenging, unique, eccentric, just people doing it differently because I wanted their unusual point of view to rub off on me. Yeah. And maybe I, I wonder, I guess, if... If you're in company with people who are interesting and they see you as interesting or cool or special, then there's some right. like gratification hmm. unconsciously yeah. that comes from that. Yeah, unconsciously. I mean, everything, every, all of my motivation uh, for a, for a good while was to be this original, insightful thinker writer. Mm -hmm. And so I was constantly like, I liked Woody Allen movies because of that incredible dialogue. And I wanted to write dialogue like that in mm -hmm. this Woody original way. And same with Hemingway as, as a writer. Mm -hmm. Who knows what their numbers actually are? I bet they're forced to. I'm just kidding. We I don't can't know. just type. We can't type. Especially celebrities. So I want to um, talk for a second about uh, your triad. You're in the heart triad. You and I both are, which I think is makes a very interesting partnership. So heart types, we are emotion focused. We're really highly like tuned in to emotions and relationships and the dynamics between people um, fours in particular are really tuned into their own emotional landscape. So more than like others, more than other heart types. Yeah. yeah. So how, how have you, um, your capacity for feeling, um, how has that shown up for you and what's being a heart type like? Well, as a, as a man, you know, heart type, um, in our, you know, highly masculinized culture, like, you know, there's, it, there's different times of which it's, I think, like when I was in high school, I think that, you know, the, the longing to be with accepted into more of the in crowd that I couldn't crack from the beginning of the time when I moved to Richmond, Virginia, uh, was, I think that I, I like was really sad but wouldn't have been willing to admit it or that aware 
of that kind of sadness. But I, I could skip forward a long ways to, I remember an early marriage, like when I was, you and I were married and, you know, life was, you know, was challenging in a lot of ways. I was, you know, finishing grad school and looking at vocational work, working really hard and being really underpaid. Uh, and same with you. And there would be times where we would, if we would have like some conflict and it would be unresolved, I would just be so like melancholic on my drive to school and just very, yeah. And I think, I don't know if, if my, I'm very introspective and I'm very, uh, I am emotional at core in that way, even though I think I don't, I know, I don't know how much we're going to like address the existence of wings, but if the four is planted next to the, the first of the head types of a five, I mean, I'm plenty analytical and as you well know, and you know, and I think I come by it naturally. I don't think it's just because I'm a man. Mm-hmm. So I think there is like, I am in that heart type place um, at deepest core, but you know, sometimes it's hard to get me out of my head. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely have the, a blend of, of, I think both of those, but you're definitely an emotional person. So you, like you talked about melancholy, you just mentioned that. So I think one of the things that's... Should we give an overview of the heart, head and, and, um, and, and body types? Sure. Just to, okay. So two through four, I don't know two, where three, we should four. start. Two, three, four are the, the triads of the heart types. Five, six, seven are considered more of the head types and eight, nine, and one are the body or the gut types. Very good. Yeah, so we all have, uh, you know, in our dominant type, when we figure out what our Enneagram type is, it sits in one of those triads, and that is really kind of a core intelligence that we just naturally show up in the world with. It's not hard, um, it's unconscious, and a lot of times it's so natural we don't even know that it's a thing. Like, I didn't even know it was a thing to be a heart type. Um, sure. But other people and other head types and body types, you know, see what we do and how we feel and we feel easily, we feel deeply, I think is like, that's not something that comes natural to everybody. So I want to like shift for just a second because you are a sexual four. And so your instinct, your dominant instinct, and it doesn't mean sex. (laughs) Sex Should, Should we also give overviews of subtypes? In case well, of our listeners. Yeah, we can do that in a second. Okay. But I want to just stick with this because you mentioned sadness and right. melancholy. Yeah. And I think there is, that is a defining characteristic of type four, which is um, real accessibility of that sadness, of that kind of, um, I think melancholy is just the perfect word. Because there's this depth of emotion. I think when we get to the deep part of that well, there is a lot of sadness there for all heart types. But I think especially for type fours. But what's interesting, and I want you to share a little bit about this, how that shows up differently for you. So when you feel the sadness, um, I think for a sexual subtype, 
Um, and the sexual subtype is just the one-to-one bonding instinct. And so these are usually intense people. They're very, they're the pursuers in relationships a lot of times. Um, they're risk takers. They're a little more direct. So to be this emotional kind of um, sad heart type mixed with this one-to-one bonding sexual instinctive energy looks really um, different. And so I think we struggled with your type for a very long time. Right. Yeah. Cause it's not the social subtype, which that's sort of to me, the opposite of the sexual. And then in between to me is the self-preservation. I think that's your stack. So that's why it feels that way. But continue. Really? Yeah. So you don't... Okay. So if you're a sexual subtype, aren't you typically repressed socially as a social type? No, you type? could have any oh. other one could be repressed. Okay. So there's not that... All right. I take your word for it. No. We'll, we'll, I think that's your stack though, which so it makes sense that it feels that way. Um, well, I think when we learned the subtypes it was like a bell went off a lot. It was a lot more helpful to really make, you know, nail the four one-to-one bonding type of uh, type as really overall nailing me. So how does sadness... And it can look like the eight, the challenger. Yeah, right. And it's been said that the sexual four is the angriest... Yeah, you know, okay, let's talk about that. You know, um, I've read that in um, B. Chestnut's book uh, about, it. you know, the the four being the angriest of all of the types, which is 27 types. And let's see. Well, that's her opinion. Okay, it's her thesis or whatever. Yeah, um, I would say that that it doesn't feel like that completely character really characterizes me. I don't think that you would have, if you had known me that, you know, that you would have thought that I was angry on really throughout many different times of, of life. What's happening there? Like, um, (laughs) nobody was doing anything. Where did your hand? Okay. Um, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> we're gonna have to fix that i don't know um oh it's my glasses it's your glasses <laughs> i knew it i was like i'm not moving okay all right um so i did when when i became aware that anger is a predominant or, or an underlying characteristic of this type it made me do some work and some self-examination kind of almost going backwards and you know Let's see. I was like, well, you know, I really, really do do love Metallica. I got a lot, (laughs) I got a lot of passion. And, you know, in my teens and my high school time, you know, like, you know, like tapping into that anger to lift a little bit more heavier weight. And, you know, Guns N' Roses was my rock and roll of choice for a while. And some of that just angry, you know, stuff. Um, But I guess it would probably have been a very like deeply kind of um, quietly channeled type of anger. Like uh, that's, you know, I'm, I do probably struggle some with authority, but it's like, I try really hard to maybe sublimate it. Like I'm not outward about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, but you know, 
I think when I met you, you kind of recognized that, Chad, you've got some unconscious anger that you need to be working (laughs) on. Let's make that conscious. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we worked on that for, well, still working on it, you know. Uh, But no, we worked on it for a long time to help it become more conscious in me. Yeah. and Because you wouldn't have thought of me as a temperamental person, like, I think, I think at times, I mean, I would have always, and you know, our kids have said this, that you are, you can be moody. Moody. So I think that's the emotional kind of undercurrent. Um, moody I, for sure. And let me give a quick anecdote on that as a professor. Like I, I always knew it about myself, but it even showed up in my professional life as a professor. Most of the time, you know, I would say, Eight or nine times out of 10, I'm coming into the classroom and I'm like, Hey, it's a great day. Let's, here's our lesson plan. Let's tackle this. Hope you did your reading. Kind of very optimistic and upbeat and fun. But if everything wasn't right, if my, my energy was low, if I hadn't gotten good sleep, if you and I had had a disagreement, I don't know what, if something was affecting my mood, then I just really had an incredibly tough time being fake, you know, not, not being usual, typical chipper Chad. Right. And so inevitably on my student evaluations, when they would write the comments, it would be like, you know, most of the time he's really, you know, upbeat and fun, but you know, sometimes they would just be confused by the change in tone. Yeah. That no matter how hard I tried, inevitably there were going to be some down downer days. Yeah. And that's, you know, authenticity is huge for type fours. That's true too. So I don't, I'm not surprised at all to hear you say that you couldn't fake it. You couldn't show up other than how you were. In other group dynamics, I've heard people say, well, everyone knows how Chad feels, you know? Right. Everyone's got to know how Chad feels. Yeah. 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 You do. You wear it out there like that. But I'm curious about like the relationship between um, as a type four who feels feels deeply um, with this, you know, outward f- energy of the sexual instinct, like how how do you how do how do you reconcile that? Like, what is the work you've done around the feelings you feel inside and how they show up outside of you? And sometimes really beautiful and I think authentic ways, and then sometimes really hurtful ways in destructive ways to people. So how do you now think about that with the Enneagram and the work that you've been doing? Well, it's a huge question. And it's hard to just like take on uh, all at once. But I mean, I think that this actually is helpful for all types in a way, but it's when we to know, or at least I've heard that it's true a lot for eights as well. I guess this is interesting to think about out loud. It's what I've learned is, you you make more of an impression and impact on people by how what you're saying and how you're behaving than you realize mm. with that intense you know say it like it is you know kind of kind of approach that is like what I would always thought of it well that's just my value system is just be straight up you know just say it like it is um but yeah, you know, knowing that that is kind of a personality characteristic more so than even necessarily some just kind of principled ethical value. 
uh, you know, um, it's just, a, it's a different kind of way of communicating that not everyone's necessarily comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that kind of answers the question. It's sort of like for a long time. And I know, you know, like one thing that's helped me understand the sexual subtype, the one-on-one is, I don't know if it, are they called introverts, but like I always, that whole Myers-Briggs prism of seeing things, I always was like, well, I don't really feel like just like some kind of in- introvert. I feel pretty balanced. I'm social or sociable, even though I, I like to, you know, do my reading and be a homebody a lot too. So, I mean, it's like, but I think that there's, a, you know, at parties, I would often find myself with like, Sometimes I didn't like it. It was like I, I felt trapped, but it was like I think I played into it with with either another quirky, quiet guy or or girl. Like, why is it just me and this person talking for a really long time? Like, how can I not get out of this? What you know? It's that's funny. It's, I'm supposed to be being social. It's a party, you know. That's such a sexual subtype, yeah. Thing to say, yeah. Um. So here's what I'm wondering and I'm want to ask you about. So, because the one of the things I've learned about um, sexual fours in general, and I've certainly seen it in you, is the deeper feeling of um, inferiority or self-conscious yeah. or insecurity and how I, I think di- fours that are different subtypes do th- do different things with it. Yeah. But I think what your subtype does, what you do is it's so unconscious, like that insecurity. And it's like, you know, you blow it into a bottle and like throw it into the ocean and whoever's in the wake is going to feel the impact of that energy and emotion. And, and sometimes it's anger. So it's like lobbying, like all like some of that insecurity of people because it's it's so unconscious and so does that make sense? Uh, I know we've talked about that before, but this feeling of like wrestling with your own insecurity and this unconscious level, and it comes out in moodiness or melancholy or even anger at times. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's this, the, the prism through which we see our, the personality characteristics through the Enneagram has definitely helped me do more than like get, I've, you know, a long time ago I came across in graduate school reading about this, you know, inferiority versus, you know, superiority and that whole complex one way or the other. And, and those are somewhat helpful to begin thinking about the issue, but, but man, something opened up when learning about that dichotomy in, you know, my personality characteristics as a four, um, with a subtype of one-on-one, um, when, when I go back in time and I look at all my relationships, uh, there, there really was this, I, I really felt much more comfortable if I was in the dominant what I felt to myself, I was the superior one. Um, and yeah, there was just a lot of sizing up. It was very important to me to be superior in, in every little aspect of things that we could do. So I'm pretty competitive no matter what it is that I'm doing um, with others 
And, you know, and it really can be very difficult to clearly be not as good as someone else. Um, and, you know, in my, like, I think early college kind of exploring things for the first time on my own as an 18 and 19 year old, then getting into a fraternity, uh, I just became more aware of the ways that that manifested and how, you know, I even had this little bit of like what I can now see as an arrogance uh, of this. Well, if I kind of assumed I was better than someone, it's just like I just was. And I, I, I also didn't like, I really resented being, being like other dominant personalities in a, in a room because I felt like they made me quiet and that made me feel inferior. And I was like kind of out to show people that you're not going to make me be quiet. I remember that a little bit. And sometimes that would disrupt the little, you know, little alpha kind of hierarchy thing in the fraternity and run me into conflict. So how do you deal with that now? when you feel that inferiority or insecurity like bubble up? Well, I've done a fair amount of, of work just like thinking what the places where it will, it's, it's most vulnerable to get me are things that I like valued that I set out to succeed at in life and put effort into. Yeah. And then I feel like, you know, didn't manifest in that success or we could just say I failed or we could put a comma on it. But like, you know, if to find someone else younger than me or even the same age with more accomplishments in in those areas, it's, it used to be just an unconscious trigger of like, I was just mad and I wanted to vent about, you know, whatever it would be. And now? And and now through a lot of self-examination, mindfulness, life experience, uh, I've just, you know, I think that, you know, I don't know. I'm embracing the, the humility that, that failure brings to your door. And I accept, I kind of have just more of a general acceptance of certain things. And I also know that like, if something's important enough to me that I can always hitch up my pants and get back to work, Mm. you know? Which may be some of that three wing, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Oh, So, so three wings exist. Wings, you're into wings. Of course. Oh. Not as a subtype though. Right. Um, so I'm going to talk for a second about your adaptive strategy, the type four adaptive strategy. So and just get your take on this. Fours believe that they were somehow like responsible for some type of past experience of loss or abandonment or rejection, like a lot of them will report looking back at some point in their life where things were good, and then there was a turning point or a defining moment where things, there was a loss or it felt like something bad has happened, and I'm somehow responsible for that. Hmm. So they, you all have this adaptive strategy of believing that you can do something to regain what was lost through your own efforts. So it's like something 
And then you become um, really tuned into lack or like I somehow have a deficit in me and and that's creating this uh, loss or this sense of abandonment. And then if I go do something, then somehow I can make that up. Does that make sense? I, you know, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how much our personalities form when we're like 18 months, right? So I've been a... No, no, like five, six years. Oh, okay. So, well, okay. They're fully formed by then. Yeah. And the the thing that happens with personality is it's, I believe it's nurture and nature and that we come into the world with certain temperaments and certain... um, predispositions and then the holding environment we're in reinforces those. And so somewhere in the four, in the four's life, things were good and then things went bad and they feel like they, they had, they're somehow responsible for it. And so then you take that strategy into your adulthood. So I guess what's interesting, if there is a pre and a post where like, in very broad brushstrokes, things were um, more, much more idealized, and then they were not nearly as good. It certainly would have been, uh, uh, you know, until you know, I was almost eleven, but I was pretty much had lived through all of being ten when we moved from uh, Marin County in the West, uh, you know, in in California. Um, 3,000 miles away to Richmond, Virginia, where I would begin the sixth grade uh, at um, Bird Middle School in Henrico County. And it was just a real culture shock. And I remember, but what's interesting is I think that, that I already, so a few characteristics about the California time was like, of course it wasn't all perfect, and I would say dad was a very serious, intense man and, and would see, could seem to get angry quite quickly and wasn't as present as he ended up becoming later. Uh, I don't know the, I haven't, I don't, I don't know how much that may or may not have had an impact on me. I do remember though, feeling like my parents were pretty strict and, um, when I was in the fifth grades, when I was 10, I started getting into writing. I always loved reading a, a, quite a good bit. And, um, I wrote a short story, like typed it and everything for the class. It was the longest one. It's been a long time on the story. It was very important to me. And it was called The Runaways. And it was all about these kids who were able to escape their house by making a go-kart and taking all these trails and staying away <laughs> as long as they possibly um, could get away with. So there was always that little yearning for freedom and for wanting the rules not to be quite so strict uh, that I already had in me. But I don't know about the... I definitely remember the more of the melancholy and the feeling sad uh, when we moved to Richmond. And so that was, you know, middle school and high school. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, I've, I've been doing some work around trauma a little bit and understanding kind of this continuum, the spectrum of trauma that we all endure as just being human. Uh, for some of it's, it's little T, some of us, it's big T. Right. So, but those are, those are these kind of crystallizing moments where that are, it, the ego does solidify our personality structure 
a little bit. Well, and recently, now that you, you mentioned this, I just read uh, an article on Gabor Mate, who actually I think has a documentary right now on Netflix about how, look, we're all, we all have suffered some trauma, but it's not like we're not fetishizing uh, trauma or like, you know, making it like, oh, we were all so wounded. But it's really, it's not so much the pain of the trauma, it's that there there was no one to, to we were talk alone. about it. We were alone in the trauma. Yes. We were alone in the, sometimes not even knowing we're having the drama or certainly the words to put it to. Right. Yeah. And I think that when we don't have, you, especially as little kids, we don't have language to understand what's going on. And so I guess, you know, what I'm suggesting and what the Enneagram suggests is that the four strategy is to interject, is to kind of take in whatever's not going right. And it somehow has to do with me. And therefore I need to um, change what I, who I am, what I do, how I'm perceived in the world. By God, I better be seen as special because that's somehow going to give me back What's missing? Yeah. And as a, as the firstborn of two firstborns, um, when my parents like saw me do something good or that they approved of, oh man, it was heavy and high praise, you know, and it, yeah, it just felt like, it, you know, if I made little uh, my smiley magazine once a month, they just stroked the ego, make, building me up to, it just made me feel really special. So can we talk about your the passion of envy and the virtue of equanimity? <laughs> Is that okay? I don't know. Can we? So you've mentioned it a little bit. Um, yeah, I, the envy. I, well, let me just, I'm going to say Beatrice, my, my teacher, Beatrice Chestnut's um, quick definition. She says that envy of the type four manifests as a painful sense of lack and a craving for what is felt as lacking. In envy, there's a perception that something good is outside the four's experience and that there is a deficiency on their part. It's the habit of comparing themselves to others and the feeling that derives from an ongoing comparison that puts them below or above yeah. another person. Well, I mean, I think we we've we have talked about that. You know, um, I guess I could give maybe another example. Where do you experience it the most? Where are you most aware of around? You mean just in like life experiences, can I point to an example or, um, okay. Well, I remember, um, I was engaged to be married to someone else before you. So my, my, your, my, um, a fiance, I went to meet her family in Springfield, Missouri, and she had two older brothers and one older brother. He uh, was known as the all-around guy. He was this incredible athlete, and he was funny and good-looking, and he could sort of do no wrong in everybody's eyes. Uh, and I won't even say the poor second brother. He didn't. He wasn't gifted in those other ways. Hopefully, they will but, not listen to this podcast. Right, uh, but I'm not naming names. Uh, but so, and I remember like, you know, meeting this older brother of my fiance and thinking, yep, he's pretty tall and, and nice looking and, uh, funny. Uh, and I was, but, and I, and I was feeling like inferior, you know, and I was like thinking to myself, 
I'm going to prove to all of them that I am just as good or better. Right. Yes. I don't know. It's it's, it's obviously a lifelong thing when you can pull up these little moments of. uh, Yeah. I think this is our life's work. I don't think this this ends. There were lots of examples in my fraternity. So I was thinking of when we were dating, passport. Okay. And there was, you know, I, I would imagine at the time I didn't know because, you know, people would be like, well, Chad's really opinionated or he's arrogant or he's, why is he so upset? And I, you know, and I, I could see through that like, oh, that's not him being a jerk. It's him feeling insecure. It's it's what I think, like this envy, again, super unconscious, yeah. but it's there, and I think it's working out. How do you how do you um, measure up to people? And then it's like, how then do I relate to people? And so, if you felt that that envy come up, and it feels like you're on the the losing side of it. Then I think that's where some of that... I think in some of that context, there was some misunderstandings in the first place of expectations for at Passport. <laughs> um, seriously, I think it caused a little bit of... People were asking things of me that I was like, I didn't know I was going to have to do all this. Right. Um, but I really... So I remember, Shelly, what you're talking about is actually still um, when you and I were dating, but we were at your graduate school and I was being invited to a lot of functions and parties where you were sort of the center of attention. You know, you had a lot of good friends and and I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And this happened time and again where I didn't not want to go to your things with you, but it caused tremendous anxiety for me to go and not literally know a single other person. And so I remember, yeah, putting on this kind of really confident face. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. And some of it probably came from definitely feeling a little inferior. I mean, I was like a substitute school teacher. I wasn't feeling like, like high on myself. Mm Mm-hmm. What about, um, well, before I move on from that, where does it, what are you aware of? Uh, and I'll push you a little bit. Where do you, where do you see or feel the envy most get stoked? Okay. I, I got it. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I don't, right, right now, I mean, I don't, I'm not as aware of it, but in the fairly recent years, um, when I would go to a writer's conference or, or do a reading somewhere, man, the air, if I have like got a, a spidey sense radar detector for arrogance and I just hate it. It's just triggers me like big time, like, um, makes me really angry. And I finally last year, when we started really talking about the shadow side and we're, and I really began to understand how the shadow side is sort of if, if effectively the unilluminated side of a part of who we are. And it's, you know, it's a part that for one reason or another, we have tried to push down. And so I would say that like all my life being a minister's kid, a pastor's kid and, you know, instilling a lot of these very positive virtues and values that I always, 
I always did definitely have a value of modesty and humility, no matter what, what I did. But I will say that that was misconstrued a lot of times. I think I, you know, so the shadow side is that I do have this side of superiority of feeling like I've got to be better. And I think that what triggers me in someone who's arrogant is that they are saying to me very outwardly, and they may do it to everybody and maybe because they feel insecure and all that, but they're saying that they're better than, than me. And that just, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably where I've seen you do the most growth and work around lately like or the last year or whatever is observing the that tendency to get hooked by people who are arrogant usually men that you know mm-hmm. um, and what that does to you and where that's uh kind of stokes some of that envy for you or that those emotions for you and like really work to separate like disidentify with them which is really what the ego is doing. This all of your this personality structure we're talking about is your ego's way of keeping you safe. And so but you've really I've seen you see it for what it is. Like, oh, that's envy again or oh, that arrogant guy is hooking me and here's why. And so you've really started to see it for the 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 layers that it is is not just kind of the the default that you're, you know, just reality. Like you're really starting to unpack it a little right. bit more. Right, yeah. I, I am. Okay, so my other teacher, Oranio Pius, yes. he defines equanimity, which is the virtue of type four. I love those guys. It's great hearing them riff. They're so good. Um, he says that equanimity has to do with balance. Balance and how fours see themselves and others. It's a new way to feel that who am I, who I am is equal to who you are. Yeah. In equanimity, fours crave simplicity and emotional neutrality. Oh. There's a calmness and appropriate emotional response to what's happening around them. That is interesting. Now, I, for, first of all, I do crave simplicity. I've always done you from, from the beginning of, of time, right? I've been like, I wouldn't mind just, you know, writing poems and, and farming, you know, and living, <laughs> you know, and growing grapes for wine. Right. Is what it was or, for a um, while. An apple orchard for cider or something. <laughs> Yeah, so the simplicity thing I immediately register with, but the emotional neutrality is this is pretty cool. I definitely feel a little bit on the hot seat right now because this is coming in live. Um, so I actually now, um, B and Aranyo have also said that, you know, um, everyone, every, not just nines, but every personality uh, type can be conflict avoidant. Um, it's not just definitional of, of any one type or types. Uh, and I was like, you know, I've noticed, and I do think it is, has been over the past two or three years that I, I'm like, am I being more conflict avoidant? I definitely say things like, I don't want drama. Um, I said that in the last startup I worked in that was full of drama. I say that in our family system, you know, I don't want drama. And the moment that there is, I want to address it. Let's talk about it. And, you know, let's, let's make this a 
logical, non-emotional thing or something. So, mm-hmm. but it's interesting that there's this possibility that I'm looking for emotional neutrality. I think it's this, I think of equanimity as this ability, this capacity to kind of ride the waves of the emotional waves um, without like getting sucked, sucked up by them. Yeah. Let me say that again. Yeah, say that again since the phone was... Okay. So I think about equanimity as this capacity to ride emotional waves. Because as a four, you have a lot of those emotional waves. But being Uh, able to surf them and ride them without getting like flung off or too far in or reacting or... uh, It's like really being this balanced energy, balanced emotional, I'm not above you, I'm not below you, I am present to what is. Yeah. Um, I like that. Now I think, you know, it's honestly since the pandemic hit and we've been a lot more uh, homebound and we're, it's like that I haven't felt as stressed uh, or as impatient in a lot of ways. And, and while I do think that I've grown a lot, I'm like, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, we're about to go travel some. And I'm like, you know, here we go. How will I be challenged? Because one thing we see if you have equanimity, right? Costa Rica, right? Because, um, I definitely, one thing we didn't really talk about is, um, I am, I'm not, patience is not a strong suit, you know, let's put it that way. (laughs) Um, and you know, I would be like, I want to make things so efficient or I want to do them so well or be so disciplined that I, cause, because I don't want to waste time with other things. So I would try to make like this little game out of, but in the end, it's not getting to the core, the source of you're just not of being, you're not very patient. You know, you kind of want results when you want them. And that's a little bit of the impulsive thing a little bit mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. So Room for growth. So uh, I have a few more questions just about kind of the growth path as you see it. Um, So your wings, you mentioned earlier, you have a wing of three and five. Um, The three is the, you know, task-oriented, results-oriented, success-oriented achiever type, also a heart type, uh, although they suppress those emotions quite a bit. And then the five is the more analytical, um, observing kind of their mental type. And so I'm curious, sitting in between those and and how have you thought about your wings and then integrating, especially the high side, like moving to each of them consciously versus unconsciously? Like what what does that look like for you? Hmm. Uh, the five is probably the one that I most naturally, you know, was inclined to for a long time, being in the head more, um, protecting my, my thoughts, holding them, you know, sort of to myself a little bit. Um, I feel like I can often identify the, a a, a person who really is a type five. It's like, it, it seems pretty clear to me. It's maybe a more easier one to identify, uh, for some reason. 
Uh, I don't know. The three in me, like that performer has come out with like readings and, you know, performing with wanting to perform with music. But, um, I don't know the perf, the, the, some of the three types I've known, I don't think were the healthiest. And so I've got some bad models, I would say of three types. Like there's, I'm kind of like off put by some aspects of some of the sure. threes that I've known. Yeah. Um, so maybe I need to think about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I would encourage you to keep, you know, cause the, cause the growth work, the growth path, you know, always starts with identifying your type and your subtype, which can take a long time for some of us. I think yeah. you landed on yours fairly quickly. I think we kind of had a eureka moment, but then like looking at those wings and, you know, the wing theory that I've been taught is that we, yes, while we might have a dominant wing, we need to integrate both of our wings. We need both of our wings to fly. So if you're really using the Enneagram as a tool for growth, then you, you have to spend some time understanding the quote high side of those wings. And so maybe that's a lot where your work is right now. Like how do you utilize the, like the really great things about three, the things that, you know, help them succeed and keep them moving forward. Um, I would say your full focus planner has done that. (laughs) Like keeping things like task oriented and what's my goal. You know, another thing, okay, this brings something to mind. Like, there's a way to perform that is authentic. And actually, so that's definitely been um, a recent learning curve. Um, I feel like, I, you know, I, when I was at um, Freight Waves for, you know, for those two and a half years doing a lot of podcasting, doing a lot of videoing, um, I thought that the persona that I was using, I told myself that this persona like, Hey, welcome to freight waves, Monday morning edition, you know, and all that. It's like, I thought, well, this is, that's what they want. And I'm bringing this personality and talent, but you know, upon further review and kind of re looking at myself through a different lens in, in those times, seeing some of the little shows that I hosted or whatever, I'm like, I could have been, more real even then nobody was asking me to really to have to be that i could have been still confident i could have still been um a good you know host for the content that we were putting out um without having to be kind of a hype guy mm-hmm and I remember though, even when you and I started with Big Self and we did the first, the very first couple of episodes, which I think have been deleted, <laughs> but I was kind of like, Hey, welcome, you know? And you're like, honey, just be. And I, at first I was very be you. annoyed. That's what I said. Cause I was like, well, look, I'm just putting, I'm just, we're, we're making a little show here, you yeah. know? Yeah. But since then over time and a little more, um, self-work and engagement with the process. I'm like, no, 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 that you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a game show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of the work for a four. A lot of the work for you is I'm okay. How I am like, I'm worthy like, exactly yeah, how I am. That's good. Because like, why would I? So also when I would um, do poetry readings, especially a whole lot of them over at the Meacham writers workshop at UTC and, um, and they would always go 
almost inevitably they would just, they would go really, really well. And a lot of people would, you know, affirm like, man, that was a really good, that was a fun reading. You know, it's not a typical boring, like two-tone syllable, like effect on the growth of the people God, so annoying. Um, around like you like that. It was, it's more fun. And it's, a, but to get into that persona, I was think, having to think of myself as like, dang it, I'm amazing at this and I'm going to show everybody and they're going to yeah. be. And, and then what, what happens? I get incredible anxiety right before the performance. In fact, that even happened at Freight Waves when we were launching the Sirius XM uh, radio show. And the first, very first time I'm in New York, I'm in the Rockefeller Center, and the guy's going one minute to showtime. And my heart is just going like, just, just, it must be at 125 BPM. I don't know. And, you know, and then like it would go down and I'd calm myself down and then it'd be like 10 seconds. And then it would just be like, okay, here it goes. And this is out of body. And, and so, but it, you know, and it happened literally, I remember nine consecutive weeks where my heart would race right before the very moment of going on. And suddenly I, I, John, I told my brother about it and he finally said, well, why don't you just meditate for a few minutes before I do it every day? And I tried it with the meditation app for 10 minutes and I wasn't nervous that, that very first time and forever after then. And in fact, for a long time, I thought it was so silly, but what I'm thinking and getting at shell is that I think there is that inauthentic side of myself um, in the performance wing mm-hmm. that I'm growing into. Yeah. And I think like when you're doing work with your wings, it's like, I don't know if this is correct thinking or not, but this is how I think about it. So we go to, you know, one wing and we really experiment. We try some things and then we kind of have to come back to the dominant type. So to come back to the authenticity, like, I don't think you can stay in performer mode sustainably or with real um oh truth without being pulling in your authentic self as well um, melancholic same, moody <laughs> i'm so <sure>. special <laughs> let's say because the four has a, a lot of high sides and your your creativity and authenticity is of course that so um, before we wrap up, do you want to share anything about your arrows? So the arrows mm. for the type four, um, the arrow against is to one, the arrow toward or forward is to two. And so yeah, typically, these are interesting. well, I mean, typically we talk about those as like the stress point and your growth point. Um, and I'm so thankful for my teachers who are helping me think about it in a little bit of a different way. So we can move to each of our arrows unconsciously with reactivity, with little to no awareness, and that creates a bunch of stress. So both points can be stressful for us on the arrow. If we go to them unconsciously. Correct. And that we can, we can, uh, just like I'm saying about the wings, we can do that integrating of the arrows consciously with full awareness, with intention, with like, I'm going to work on this arrow in this way. That can be growing. 
And even if it does create some dissonance for us, because we're growing is always hard. So you're one and you're two. Those are your two arrows. So what are you learning about those arrow paths for you? And then how is that affecting your growth work? Well, I think for clarity, like you move, you move to one and what is it like ease and one you go to in stress? That's what I'm saying. Like, so your, your arrow against is your one. So that's what against would mean. I go to it in stress. No, that's what we call your child heart center. So those are, um, the one is, you know, the, the attributes that probably feel most home to you. And so if you think about like the type one, um, they have like a real sense of uh, principle. They have a real sense of rightness in the world. Um, they're, they're a little more methodical. Um, right. Um, I think so. It's interesting. Am I interrupting? No, go for it. I, I, okay. So I have some unconscious biases against ones like one is like, <laughs> I'm just, um, sorry ones out there, but, um, I think that, you know, honestly, I felt like, I, you know, a little bit like, I think I came up under a one and, um, I think that like there's qualities about it where it's like, I don't want to do everything perfectly and just right. And I resent, you know, being made to do them. But what is interesting is I have, you've pointed out, like there's some moments when you're, you're like, that was a very one thing to do. Like when I'm, um, thoroughly editing some manuscript, and just mm-hmm. like really looking at every sentence and leaving comments on it of all kinds. Like it's very like it's getting it just right and just so. Um, and I don't know. There are some other examples of like tending the yard and, you know, like making things, having this need to want to make them really nice and neat. Um, I, I see. Yeah. And I, I, I understand the qualities, the lower qualities of the one that you're talking about. But I also, you know, I, I see the beauty in that personality. Um, you know, the essence, I guess, of that type, because it's, it is this idealism, this way of, of seeing what is possible, like in the world. And they kind of construct their, the way they see it, their lives around that ideal, around what's possible. And I think it drives them crazy and maybe people around them um, because it's never attainable. But I do see what you're saying as that um, arrow being integrated, especially into your creativity. Hmm. There is this idealism that you have. Well, ones can be like your social activists and things, right? And just doing amazing. 100%. Yeah, work out there. Um, High integrity. I've also, though, just, you know, the ones that I, maybe, I I don't know, there's so many, they're so often judgmental. They can be. Absolutely. I think if, if, if not doing the inner work and living in personality, that absolutely. And I think the ones I know would tell you, yep, when I'm, not in my best self, I can totally be judgmental. All right. So, so, anyway, so what about the two? Cause that's my the, type. The, the <laughs> Let's talk about my type. Yeah. The, the two, like I definitely have, um, resistance to that. It's interesting. 
Um, you know, I think briefly, a brief insight would be in seminary, um, you know, the, the consideration of, I mean, right from the beginning, I was like, I'm not sure that this is going to be my profession, but we're going to stick with it, learn all that we can, and I'm going to follow through and complete this thing. But I remember there was a whole lot of, well, are you going to be a preacher or are you going to be a pastor? And I was always like, I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to like help people do hospital visitations and like do that. It's like, it's just very uncomfortable for me. And I want to be the one speaking and delivering the message from on high. Mm-hmm. And that's me in my early 20s self. But it's just a dichotomy of that, you know, I, you know, service doesn't come as naturally to me at all. It is. So I do see that as being like an important aspect of like, get out of your individual, you know, like having a need to be so special self. And why don't you do some work and like help others, Mm -hmm. help others build their communities, help others with, you know, coaching, uh, with, with writing. And actually there is this, like, there are these moments where I'm like helping others with their books and their manuscripts where I used to like feel this incredible sense of I'm doing all this work for you. And what about my book? And now I really am so much more in this place of it feels so good to help you realize a mm. lot of things that I've become expert at, uh, and, and, and give it's, it feels very natural. It feels great. Mm-hmm. I, I have seen that definitely in you since, especially since you're doing this work and pulling up all that more into your consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been really fun. This has been really fun. You're a great interviewer. Well, thank you. Thanks for pulling all this out. Um, I hope it's helpful to our listeners. Because Apologies to ones if I said anything <laughs> that offended you. They'll probably um, let you hear about it <laughs> if you did. Um, I hope this is helpful. We want to yes. we want to do this work alongside you all. Um, we are um, putting a new freebie out there. Uh, an Enneagram guide. So unlocking your potential with the Enneagram. So if that's something that you're interested in learning about, uh, we talk about the wings and the arrows and the passion and the virtue in this guide. You can go to www.bigselfschool.com slash Enneagram. That's E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. And you can download it there. So bigselfschool.com backslash Enneagram. Nice. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, let us know how your Enneagram journey is going too. Yeah. Talk to you all soon. Bye.